Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Hope is one of the most fundamental and powerful human emotions, and also one of the least studied and understood. Probably since the beginning of human thought, hope has been essential to life. One of the times when the search for hope is most urgent is in the mind of a seriously ill person. The Anatomy of Hope, How People Prevail in the Face of Illness, by Dr. Jerome Groupman, a professor of medicine at Harvard University and a writer for the New Yorker magazine, examines the role hope plays in the practice of medicine and the ways in which hope can release chemicals powerful enough to change the outcome of otherwise potentially fatal diseases. When I spoke with Dr. Groupman from his workplace in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I asked him to begin by describing how the complex emotion of hope is formed in the mind. First, I think we need to distinguish uh, between optimism and hope, uh, because we often confuse them. An optimist says everything is going to work out just fine. But in fact, often in life, things don't work out just fine. Hope is different. How is it different? It's different because it's clear-eyed. It begins by surveying everything that you're facing getting information, obtaining knowledge about all the problems, all the difficulties, all the obstacles. And then through that, with that information, carving a possible realistic path to a better future. So the first component of hope, the first part of hope, has to do with being empowered with knowledge. And when you have that knowledge and you see that possible path, the second part of hope is triggered, which is that energizing, elevating feeling we experience. And it changes the chemistry of our brain and the workings of our body. So that places a significant role on the physician in the responsibility of creating hope in the patient. Very much so. And it is done by being a partner with a patient, because the patient should know and learn and understand what he or she is facing. And then together, you figure out the path that can get you to where the patient wants to be. How is this structured? Obviously, a physician who believes what you're talking about can take the lead, but what does the patient need to do? Well, um, often when you're ill, and particularly facing uncertainty with a serious disease, it's very hard to think clearly or to ask the right questions. If you're able to do it, it's wonderful. And one question you could ask is, you know, what is true hope for me? How can I get into a better place medically? And that involves listening to what's going on, obtaining the facts, and then figuring out which path is best for you to choose. 
If you're not able to do that because you're too frightened, you're too confused, you're too weak, then you bring a friend or a family member or a clergyman or someone who can act as the ears and eyes and the advocate to get that information that leads to true hope. Generally, it seems to me that that's a good thing to do um, because of the stress of being in that situation where you're going to be told um, extreme circumstances about your health and your life. Very, very much so. Uh, I know this from personal experience, having been a patient, that it's very hard to hear what's being said and also to calmly and prudently choose among different options that are offered to you. I made a terrible mistake uh, about my own health by impulsively choosing surgery, uh, which frankly wasn't needed, and it had a very destructive effect. What you're saying, Jerry, is that when the patient is knowledgeable about the parameters and the scope of what is coming towards them, that constructs a biological change in their body. Absolutely. Tell Um, us about that. Those changes are fascinating. We're just beginning to learn about them. You know, hope is often portrayed in the popular literature as a magic wand. You know, if you just think positively, your cancer will melt. Or if you laugh, your lupus goes away. That's not true. That's not what happens biologically. But there are really important changes that have been documented with hope. One of them, for example, is the change in pain. When you have hope, true hope, you release in your brain chemicals like endorphins that markedly reduce the amount of pain you're feeling. And pain is often the greatest obstacle for a patient to begin a treatment or to have the strength to endure it. Muscle function. There are very good studies done on people with Parkinson's disease that with belief and expectation, they release as much dopamine, which is a chemical in the brain that allows their muscles to work better, as occurs when they're given a drug. Heart disease. There are excellent studies that show that people who have true hope have a more rapid recovery from heart attack and a more permanent recovery. So we're just beginning to learn about how hope can change the chemistry of the brain as well as the workings of the body. So what are we learning about how to foment hope in a person who comes in and is confronted with these potential uh, and death-bringing disasters? Well, each person is an individual, and what I try to do in the book is to give examples, cases, which to me taught me the answers to your question. For example, one man I took care of was a Vietnam veteran named Dan Conrad. He had a lymphoma, a cancer of the lymph glands. Now, in this day and age, that is an eminently curable cancer. And I thought I was being sort of, uh, you know, one of the guys and using all these military metaphors. And I said, Dan, we're in the trenches together. We're going to blast this cancer. We've got the ammunition. And yet, he couldn't find hope. He couldn't take that first step to a cure. And it turned out that I didn't know him well enough, and I didn't appreciate the importance of memory. Dan had an army buddy who had had cancer, a different cancer, 
not lymphoma, but lung cancer. And he had been next to his army buddy's side through pointless chemotherapy and a terrible death. And that memory was what guided Dan in his vision. How did you adjust that memory, if, if that's the right term, of what you did? Well, actually, a nurse did it, and she did a brilliant thing. She was much wiser than I. When we finally convinced Dan to come in to be treated in the chemotherapy clinic, what she did was to seat Dan next to a woman who also had a lymphoma and was several months ahead of Dan in the treatment program. She was almost cured. Dan could see another human being who was on her way to health. And that reality of the present was able to erase his memory of the past so that he could now see a future for himself. You mention in your book the effect of emotions and circumstances, uh, statements that are made by uh, physicians and and, uh, nurses, almost as if there's a window of opportunity. There very much is. And words, language, spoken words, and we could also say body language, has enormous impact on a patient. And there is a moment when a patient is essentially reading what a doctor or a nurse is saying, what they're saying with their voice and what they're saying with their body. And the doctor and nurse may say, there is hope, there's real hope, or the doctor and nurse may not believe in hope. And that message is also transmitted. And so we need to be honest with people, but we also need to be able to effectively communicate the fact that there is hope. What is the shift in the current training of physicians in, in the medical schools now that deal with this topic? It's just beginning. As I say in the book, I unfortunately was not educated in any of this. I learned by making mistakes, sometimes terrible mistakes, which frankly hurt people because I took hope away from them or I lied to them and gave them false hope. And both instances were wrong. Only now, I think... Do physicians realize that with all the wonderful science of medicine, gene cloning and MRI scans, do patients really still need a sense of hope that what every patient comes to a doctor looking for is hope? How does the patient get it? That statement, every patient needs hope, but how do we develop it? How do we create that in the system? What we need to do... Uh, is two things. You need to know a person very deeply. You need to understand why that person, for example, can't find hope, like the example with Dan Conrad. And I give other examples in the book. You need to understand the roots of their thinking. Sometimes it's in memory. Sometimes it's for other reasons. I talk about a woman who is an Orthodox Jewish woman who came to the surgery service when I was a medical student. And she had a very large breast mass, about the size of a walnut. And I couldn't figure out how a young, smart woman could allow a tumor to grow to this size before seeking medical attention. And it turned out that she was in a suffocating situation. She had an arranged marriage. 
She was unhappy in her life, and she was having an affair with her boss. She had no illusion that this man loved her, but it was her one moment she could escape. And now she saw her breast cancer as a punishment from God for her sin of adultery. Now, I can tell you, at that age, as a medical student, I was completely in over my head. But this woman felt she was undeserving of hope. She felt she had no right to hope because she was getting her just punishment. So in each case, we need to understand the roots of hopelessness. And what that takes is time. And time, as you will indicate, is one of the rarest, rarest commodities in the modern medical system. So where do we go from here in enhancing and making this commodity available? But before you answer that, I'd like to say that we're talking with Dr. Jerome Groupman, a professor at Harvard Medical School, about his recent book called The Anatomy of Hope, How People Prevail in the Face of Illness. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. So where do we go from here, Jerry? I think that it's imperative that hope become a central focus, both of the medical curriculum as well as the practice of physicians. It's something which I'm struggling to do in my own practice, and it's something that patients desperately want and need. Once we appreciate both the biological as well as the psychological benefits of hope for a person, once we understand hope as such a key component in the equation of healing, then I think we're obligated to make time for it, to address it head on, and to use it to the benefit of those in need. Then I think we should explain what the biological benefits of hope are. How does that work in terms of mind over body versus body over mind? There is both a mind-body connection as well as a body-mind connection. In terms of the mind-body connection, what's been rigorously documented through good scientific studies is that hope can reduce the amount of pain that a person perceives, can increase muscle function, can increase respiratory function, have a tremendous benefit for people with asthma and other lung diseases, can reduce the pain of arthritis and increase the flexibility of joints so that it's easier to go through rehabilitation, can improve heart function with recovery from heart attack, Parkinson's disease. The effects on the immune system are not really well understood yet. So that's still an open question. But there is a biology to hope, like there's a biology to fear, a biology to anxiety, and a biology to every other emotion. So that is key in terms of learning more about it so we can use it to the benefit of the patient. What are some of the studies that are going on now to enhance this learning from a uh, neuropsychiatric point of view, perhaps, with brain imaging? The week of February 20th, 2004, Science Magazine published a very important study looking at the brain pathways that mediate hope and other positive emotions. One of the researchers is Professor Richard Davidson, whom I feature in the book. He's at the University of Wisconsin. And it turns out 
that the frontal lobes, which is the higher cortex, where cognitive function and the sort of most intellectual and informational kind of processing occurs, that's where hope is sparked. And those pathways reach deep down into the core of the brain where pain and fear and anxiety are triggered, much more primitive emotions and feelings. So that we're beginning to see that this informational component of hope has an important effect on tempering fear and anxiety and therefore sparking courage and resilience. Jerry, when you were a young oncologist on the staff in Boston uh, at the beginning of your career, one of your mentors who was a um, experienced physician in the field of stomach cancer developed stomach cancer himself. Tell us that story. George Griffin was the chairman of the pathology department and a world expert in stomach cancer. And at the age of 58, he developed stomach cancer. No one knew more about stomach cancer than George, and no one knew more what the odds were. And the odds were very much against him, so far against him that I, being a young doctor on the staff and most of my colleagues, essentially wrote him off. We said, you know, he should just go home and die. There's no reason to try. George insisted on being treated. He wasn't in denial. He knew exactly what he was facing. In fact, he planted bulbs in his garden, thinking they would bloom in the spring and those flowers would be at his funeral. And 18 years after George developed stomach cancer, I sat in the cafe of the hospital waiting to see him and have lunch and interview him for the book. Well, what happened? How did he uh, survive? He was one of the lucky ones. And I said, George, you know, if I had been your doctor, you'd be dead. And he said, I know that, Jerry, you and most of the others on the staff. But I had the right to hope. I had the need to try. I desperately wanted to live. I knew that the chances I would live were very small but they're never zero. The tumor sometimes doesn't read the textbook. Nothing in medicine is written in stone. And he had a very libertarian view about treatment. He believed it was his right to try. And even if he weren't cured, that fight gave meaning to his life. He also would respect someone who decided not to try toxic therapy, chemotherapy, and just live life on their own terms without such therapy. But I learned from that that everyone has the right to hope and that you need to support them in what they're hoping for. Jerry, tell us about the experiences that you've had with some of your other patients that are significant in developing the concept of the right to hope and uh, the need to try. One of the most instructive lessons I ever had in the right to hope came from a woman, a patient of mine named Barbara Wilson, who had breast cancer. 
Barbara was a very tough, feisty woman, and I, I adored her. And for many years, the treatment kept her breast cancer at bay. And then, ultimately, we reached a point where I had no good treatment to offer her. And so, towards the end of the day, when things quiet down in the hospital, I went to visit with her to tell her. And I sat by her bedside, and I said, Barbara, I have no more medicines to give you. And she looked at me, and she said, no, you're wrong, Jerry. You have the medicine of friendship. And what she meant by that was that she acknowledged that she no longer had a legitimate hope for her body. And all of us, actually, will reach a point in life when we won't have that hope because we're mortal. We all will die. But she said to me she still had hope for her spirit, for her relationships. And in her case, she needed to reconcile important problems in her family. And she also was a woman of faith, and she needed to find peace with God. So I think that what I've learned from Barbara Wilson and other patients like her is that the shift of focus can move from the strictly clinical to the spiritual. And you don't need to be a religious person for this. There are relationships, a sense of love, important factors in our life that transcend the strictly clinical. And we want to hope for a better outcome for those elements in our lives. To prepare that hope, I think it's probably beneficial to develop hope in other aspects as opposed to limiting it to medical um, cancerous aspects of life. Absolutely. I so think, yeah. tell us about that. What do you suggest in, in your experience? Well, I think there are two ways uh, to see that. And that is that hope is not, of course, restricted to just medical aspects. We have tremendous hope for our relationships, hope for our children, hope in work, that we have fulfillment in work, that our work makes a contribution to society or to others. And all of these elements, all of these domains of our life enormously empower us when we reach a difficult moment because we draw on them for hope. We draw on them for a reason to live. And if we ultimately arrive at the place where Barbara Wilson arrived, when we don't think we're going to live, all of the immaterial things are stripped away. All of the insubstantial things are stripped away. And what we're left with is the love and the relationships that we've cultivated and developed during our lives and the contributions that we've made in our work that will live after us. And that gives a tremendous sense of comfort and of hope for the future, even when we're gone. So is that a way of addressing why some people have hope and some people don't? I think that's very much a component for certain people, that if they've not developed hope 
if they've not really succeeded in a way in love and in work, it's very, very hard for them to see a reason to live or to have a sense that they can truly prevail. Even in the, um, in the face of significant uncertainty, people still have hope. So are you suggesting that people who feel as if they've had a successful life are more prone to developing hope than those who don't have that feeling, even though they may have had a successful life? Well, I think how you perceive success in your life is, is, is quite important. Um, you know, going back to, say, Esther Weinberg, this woman who drew on a fundamentalist theology, from the outside, she would be seen as successful within her community. She was married, she had a job, and she had born three daughters. And yet, deep inside, she had no sense of fulfillment. She had no sense of true success. So it was very, very hard for her to transcend the difficulties that she was facing, have a reason to live, and a reason to hope. I think that what illness does, or any severe circumstance, it causes us to truly focus on what is substantial and what is meaningful and what is not. And it turns out what supports us and what acts as a wellspring of hope in the most difficult times are those things that are permanent. The love and relationships we have with others and the contributions we make through our work. Dr. Jerry Gropman, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, I've read a book by a wonderful author called Tobias Wolf. It's called The Old School. He writes about a coming of age of a young uh, student in a prep school uh, in New England who wants to break out of convention and who aspires to be a writer and who examines the sort of great writers that influence him and then realizes that what every person needs to do is to follow his or her own path, that you don't copy yourself on someone else, but that you have to reach deep inside and find your own individuality in order to find your own voice. Dr. Jerome Groupman, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Jerome Groupman is the author of The Anatomy of Hope, How People Prevail in the Face of Illness. The book he recommends is The Old School by Tobias Wolf. This archive edition of Radio Curious was recorded in February 2004. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. 
The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.